Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, I want to invite you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel. We've reached chapter 19. 2 Samuel chapter 19 this evening. Will Alan, our assistant minister, is going to be preaching on the whole chapter in just a moment. You'll find it on page 270, 270, or 318, if you're using the blue large print Bibles at the back, page 270 or 318. And I'm going to read the first 15 verses. Will will then... Read the rest of the chapter. What is going to happen next to David and Joab? You remember David's heartbreak at Joab's execution of his son. What will Joab do? Is he a man of compassion or justice? What happens next? Chapter 19, verse 1. It was told to Joab, behold, David the king is weeping. And mourning for Absalom. And so the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face. And the king cried with a loud voice, Oh my son Absalom! Oh Absalom, my son, my son! Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants. Your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. 
And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Buharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and his twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king, and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. If your servant knows that I have sinned, therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim. He was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me, and I'll provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live, that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day eighty years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats, what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Jimham. Let him go over with the Lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. 
And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me and I'll do for him whatever seems good to you and all that you desire of me I'll do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan and the king went over and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal and Chimcham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at, all at the king's expense? Has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Are we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. This is God's words to us. Now, as, as we begin, we need to just think, have you ever had that experience of, of waiting someone to, to arrive, to return? I'm sure, you, I'm sure you have. You know, perhaps a friend is coming to stay or... Um, or a parent coming home, that, that sense of anticipation, that we're ready, we're waiting. Uh, something I kind of I, I walk to the window, you know, I, I have a look out and then go back and do something tiny, you know, like a rearrange a, a cushion or something, and then I go back and have another, another look out uh, the window. We're waiting, waiting for their return. That's when we're waiting on our own, but so, sometimes we can be part of a bigger version of that, can't we? I know this, this might be hard for some of us to imagine, but imagine your football team won the league. Uh, imagine that the victors are going to come through in, in one of those open-top buses and, and you're in the crowds. There's kind of a, a buzz of excitement, isn't there? A low, joyful chatter. I don't know, some songs might, might break out as you wait for them to swing around the corner. Um, or perhaps you've seen those pictures or video clips of, of people waiting to greet soldiers coming back from, from war. Joy is in the air. When a new prime minister, I don't know, a person wanted, a person of hope, uh, they're about to drive through the crowds to be sworn in. A wonderful longing and excitement. The crowds, they're ready, they're upbeat. And that, that's just a glimpse, isn't it, of, of us, of what we're waiting for. Now, we're not waiting for an open-top bus uh, full of football players, or we're not waiting for a new leader who's going to be here today and gone tomorrow. No, we're waiting for someone far more significant. Far more wonderful. We're waiting for the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Son of God Himself, Jesus Christ to return. We're waiting for, for the one who is crucified under Pontius Pilate and then died for His people, freeing them from the chains of sin and death, who rose again three days later to victory. He's seated at the right hand of, of God in the heavenly places, interceding for His people. And He is coming back. One day. Has it tonight? He's going to return in glory and power. And a question for us is this. How, how, how are you feeling about the fact that the king is returning? Or are you oblivious? You're not even aware that something's going on? Perhaps you're nervous because you haven't really trusted him anyway. Or perhaps you're excited, you're joyful. How are we going to receive him? And 2 Samuel 19, although it's written thousands of years uh, before, it gives us a window of what it means to be ready for Jesus. 
We see a window into Jesus' return as we see the king of Israel, David, return, return to his people and his kingdom. Now, if you remember, David's been forced to leave. His, his, his son Absalom attempted a coup. It failed. Last week we saw the death uh, at the hands of Joab. And now in chapter 19, David returns. The king uh, returns. And just as we saw lots of people come to David as he left, now we see a number of people come to him as he returns. Uh, Now in the beginning of the passage, verses uh, kind of one to eight, we're reminded that David is still a man struggling. He's still struggling with this idea of how love and justice work and how they're meant to meet, similar to last week, isn't it? And we see he's not a perfect king. He's good, but he can't quite keep everything together. He's in utter emotional turmoil at the death of his son. Perhaps just grief, perhaps mixed with guilt. Um, but, but that means he, he forgets those he's, who've been loyal to him. He can't quite hold it all together. He grieves his son and he shames his people. They fought for him. They saved him. They, they brought him the kingdom and yet his, his grief just makes them feel guilty for it. Uh, now Joab, the enigma Joab, has, he has a stern word with, with David in verses 5 to 7. And, and it works. David realizes he needs to pull his people together to, to show some thanks and to return. And he, he goes out to his people. Verse 8. And then the, the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And then David begins to work out how best to return, particularly in regards to the different tribes. Because uh, I don't know if you noticed, at the beginning and end of this section, we get an insight into the tension the tension between these tribes, and particularly between Judah and Israel. And we're going to see a negative example of what receiving the king looks like. Because so the king's returning, David himself, and yet initially he's got, to, he's got to get the politics sorted out. Because Israel's in a mess. They know they've got to do something, but they're divided on what. Uh, and then in verse 11 to 15, David manages to get Judah involved uh, to come and welcome him. He reminds them they are his family. And he puts their military leader, Amasa, in charge of his army, uh, and he makes peace. And getting Judah on side is actually very important because the rebellion started in Judah, so um, this is politically a good move. But as we'll see, Israel, the ten northern tribes, they don't see things in quite the same way. Their lack of action, their delay causes problems, and we'll come to that. But what the chapter focuses on are these three meetings that then happen, these three meetings in the middle, Shimei, Mephibosheth, and Barzillai. Three men who know that the king himself, the glorious ruler of Israel, is coming back to his kingdom. The only rightful ruler. And these three men, they give us a wonderful view of both the king and how to receive him. And so they help us. They help us think Christ is returning. How will we receive him? So firstly, may we receive him dependent on the king's mercy. It's the first thing, dependent on the king's mercy. Now, with the, the, the way uh, Shimei approaches is, is there in the words he says to David, verse 19, let not my Lord hold me guilty. Those are the key words he says. Now, why? We need the backstory, don't we, to this? If you remember, uh, back in chapter 16, we've come across Shimei before. Back in chapter 16, Shimei was on the opposite side. He had shown his utter contempt and disgust at David. He had stood at a distance and he'd hurled abuse. He'd cursed David. He'd even thrown stones at him. 
Uh, here it was a man worthy of death. Back in chapter 16, Abishai had said so, and here he is again saying the same. Shimei, he's shown treason, contempt for God's king. He's a dead man walking. But Shimei comes and fools, fools before the king in repentance. Just picture it, okay? As he, as he runs forward, perhaps David's guards go for their swords, but instead of contempt, instead of more words of vitriol, he falls into the dust before David, pleading for his life. Verse 19, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart for your servant knows that I've sinned. Now we don't know the full extent of Shimei's heart here. Some, some people think it's another deception, but... I think the integrity of his words, the way he's put with Mephibosheth and Barzillai, makes me think this is genuine. Shimei's gutted. He knows he's done wrong. He knows he's picked the wrong side and the sin is real. And here he just admits it. He's utterly dependent on the king's mercy. He knows he should die, but asks for mercy. Now, Abishai stands as Shimei's accuser here. He's like that voice perhaps in our ear that whispers, you know you deserve the punishment. But Abishai's missed the mark. He's not realized the heart of the king. Even though he may speak truth, he's actually working against David because David is a king of mercy. He speaks those incredible words to Shimei. Verse 23, you shall not die. Isn't that incredible? What glorious words. The king pronounces forgiveness. He's pronounced the guilty go free. It's a bit like when a president at the end of his term uh, pronounces clemency for, on prisoners, free. You were guilty, yes, but now you're free. The sin forgotten, the punishment lifted. What a moment for Shimei. There he lay before the king. A sword could have struck him at any moment. And then he hears those life-changing words, you shall not die. It must have taken a moment for it to sink in. His heart was probably racing, fear coursing through his veins, and then, and then perhaps something like peace seeped through into his anxious heart. The words of the king, mercy, mercy over him. God's king decided to be a merciful king. Rebels, traitors, even them, they can be part of the kingdom. And we're very like Shimei, aren't we? Utterly dependent on God's king's mercy. In the same way, like Shimei, we in our natures, in our hearts, we're, we've been rebels against God, we know it. Our sin, it's just a way of cursing God. It's saying we don't want him. And so when, as the king returns, how will we meet him? We'll be dependent on his mercy. Because the incredible truth is that Jesus has come to us already specifically in order to bring mercy. That's the kind of king he is. That's why he came 2,000 years ago. He came to save. He came to die for us, to bear that guilt that we should bear, to take the sword of Abishai for us. He came to be the king of mercy. That means we, we have this chance to do what Shimei has done, to, to fall before him, to admit we picked the wrong side, that we need his mercy. Dependent on the king's mercy. If you're a Christian here this evening, 
May you know the deep relief of pardon from the king. If you've fallen before Jesus in your heart, if you've admitted to him your sin, you're trusting him for his mercy, may you know that he never casts away the one who comes to him. He says to you, you shall not die. Your sin is forgiven, whatever you've done, however fierce your rebellion, he says, I I forgive it. The slate is wiped clean, the charge notice is ripped up, your guilt is dismissed. Even though you may look over the past, the present, and see regret and mistakes, if you depend on Christ, you can come to God, wash clean. He doesn't judge you like you deserve, he won't treat you like a second class human. If you're with the king, God meets you as his child. Jesus Christ, he loves to be merciful, even to you. Even to the atheist who's, who swore Jesus was a nobody. Even to the religious fanatic who killed Christians and persecuted his people. His peace reaches that kind of depths. Jesus Christ, this wonderful king, will return. And if you're not a Christian here this evening, can I encourage you to be like Shimei? To let go of your rebellion against God. To stop cursing him. To stop wishing he was dead but instead to come to him for mercy, to come to him before he returns. Because when he does return, his justice will come against his enemies, but the time of mercy is now. The king is returning and he's merciful to those who come to him. May we be dependent on his mercy. It's important we're not just tempted to see Jesus like a kind of a sweetie dispenser. You know, you come to, you just get mercy or justice, like being given out a get out of free jail card. But, you know, that's all he is to me kind of thing. No, there's, there's much more to him. Now, his mercy is glorious. But secondly, we need to look at Mephibosheth. And may we be like him, delighted, delighted by the king's presence. Now, like Shimei, there's a bit of a backstory to Mephibosheth. If you remember, this is going back a little bit further than uh, chapter 16, but he was the only remaining son of Jonathan, if you remember, and a man crippled in his legs from childhood, and he'd received extraordinary mercy and grace from David. Back in chapter 9, David had welcomed him to his table for the sake of Jonathan. And ever since, Mephibosheth had been included in David's household. He was, he was kind of part of the family. But then it goes back to chapter 16 again. When David left Jerusalem, Mephibosheth's servant Ziba turned up. And he told David that Mephibosheth had rejected David's rule and had turned and was waiting for Absalom. And so we're left kind of puzzled and wondering what's happened. Did Mephibosheth turn? If so, why? Well, be puzzled no longer. Uh, Verse 24, and Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. Now here is not a man who's been been pampering himself for the new arrival uh, of the new king, Absalom. Here is a man of deep grief, distraught at the disappearance of the king he loves. He's been like a, a child waiting at the door for his parent to return, not moving until they come, waiting. And as he explains, it seems like as if Ziba has been completely deceptive in this. He's lied to David when in fact he was the one who left Mephibosheth. 
The Mephibosheth, he's not about to enter into some courtroom debate. He has an incredible trust of David. Verse 27, by uh, my Lord, the king is, is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. All, all he's known has been the kindness from David. It's all been a gift, all grace. So he doesn't ask for more. Because actually he's not really interested in what he can get from David. He's not bothered about the land and the riches. He, here is a man who just delights in his king. Verse 30, it's a wonderful verse. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all. Since my lord the king has come safely home. He's just happy David's back. He just delights in David's presence. He's found close friendship in David, having sat at his table all these years. He doesn't need the presence. Anything from David's hand is wonderful because it's a gift from his friend. He just loves having David back. And we know this kind of delight ourselves. We've seen it. You know, when I was a, a kid, I remember dad heading off on work trips and, and when he returned he often brought a little gift uh, from the place he'd been and as a kid I'd be very quick to say um, you know as he walked in he hadn't even put his bags down I'd be like what have you brought me dad um, you know of course I loved him but I was actually more interested in what he had for me but not my mum that wasn't the first thing she said you know dad was more than gifts she was glad to have him back she delighted in him that's what Mephibosheth was like and with Jesus returning, what are you most looking forward to? Is it the gifts he brings? The wonder of the new creation, freedom from pain and sin, and those gifts are wonderful. But what about Jesus himself? When you think about the new creation, is he, is he even in it? Do you long for his presence? Will he be overjoyed that he's come back? And if not, perhaps you just need to spend some time dwelling on the connection between the, the wonderful things we receive in Christ and the one we receive them from. You know, as we hear in church, or you, you, you read in your Bible of all the wonderful things God does for us, forgiveness, healing, salvation, we need to make sure we turn our gaze to the one who gives those things. Spend a moment remembering who does it all. The generous gift comes from a generous heart. The mercy comes from a merciful king. The, the new life comes from the one who delights to give life. I've been struck recently reading bits of Mark's gospel with the kids at home, how I can, I can get stuck on the miracle Jesus does and forget it's Jesus who does the miracle. Does that make sense? Like I'm, I'm wowed by the storm being calmed but I forget, Jesus did it. It's his love, it's his compassion, it's his use of power and grace. To give another example, perhaps we may speak of you know, the cross and all it does. That's not wrong to use those phrases, but we can forget what they mean. It's not some magical piece of wood, is it? It's the self-sacrifice of a, of a person on that cross that matters. Jesus, a heart for us, a person who's worthy of our delight. He's a wonderful king. A king, as we get to know him, the more and more we begin to delight in his presence. Our hearts begin to say with Mephibosheth, let him take it all, 
since my Lord the King has come safely home. Now right now he is with us by his spirit, but he's also very much away from us. He's in heaven and we're on earth. So we wait, we long for him to come back. But he will come back and what a delight it's going to be for us, for those of us who know him. May we be delighted by the king's presence. And thirdly, may we be content, content in the king's honor. We've had dependent on the king's mercy, delighted by the king's presence, content in the king's honor. And we come to verse 31. Barzillai, the Gileadite. Uh, Barzillai, he's a great man here. He's a generous man, loyal. When David left Jerusalem, he came and provided everything David needed from uh, bed to beans. And even in his old age, he's come down out of the mountains to the River Jordan with David. He's even willing to cross with him, go a little bit further back towards Jerusalem. And he's a man who would do anything for the king. And he's also an extraordinary, uh, has extraordinary humility before David. He's provided David with so much. He sustained David's men and family. And David offers him a place at his table. And yet Barzillai says in verse 36, why should the king repay me with such a reward? Now Barzillai just shows he's not a man who's worked for the king to gain power, to gain prestige. He wasn't kind of self-motivated or ambitious. Here was a man who lived and acted for the king's honor, for his prestige. He's in it for the king's sake above all other things. Now that might be quite hard to imagine for us. We, we live in a bit of a dog-eat-dog world. We're, we're cynical, aren't we, of people who show loyalty and allegiance even when it doesn't benefit them. We, we ask questions. I wonder, I don't know for sure, but if we'd seen more of this perhaps during, perhaps during wartime. I, I know a few of our church family have lived in that time, but most of us haven't. And it, but it seems as if war can perhaps bring out a loyalty in us to something bigger that can, can disappear during peacetime. People willing to serve a bigger vision, a bigger ideal, uh, even at their own expense. Their, their national glory in those cases taking precedence. precedence. And that, that's, that's Barzillai here. He did what he could. He lived for the glory of the king. That was his vision. That was his heart. And with that, he was content. He didn't need more. Verse 37, please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. He was content, content in the king's honor. I think, what a king we have. Jesus Christ, he's not some local parochial king ruling over a small slither of land nor is he like I mean, the British king constitutionally limited more symbolic than powerful Jesus Christ the man who walked in Israel 2,000 years ago has been seated at the right hand of God in heaven as I said before he's the king of kings and the lord of lords his reign is one of justice and power and peace he's bringing all things in heaven and earth under his feet there is no enemy too great for him even death, he struck a mortal with a mortal wound. We're not dealing with fairy tales here. We're, we're dealing with the one in whom all fairy tales find their fulfillment. Because he's the one bringing peace and justice. He's worthy of all praise and honor and glory and blessing. His arrival deserves the, the streets lined with crowds. His arrival deserves the, the trumpet blast of victory. May we be content in his honor. 
Nothing is more worthy of honor than he is. No football team, no nation, no people group, no celebrity. It's the only honor worth being content in. I wonder if this issue of rewards might be a helpful window into our hearts on this one. Do we expect a, a reward from God for what we've done for him? Like we, we expect life to go well if we've been regular at church. In other words, do we want some of the honor? Now there is a reward, but are we quick to desire it, quick to want it? Or to flip it around, how do you feel when things don't seem to go your way from God? Are you bitter, frustrated, angry perhaps that God's overlooked you or us? You know, for, for me, am I, am, I, am I okay, let's say, with, with other churches who preach Jesus doing well? Or am I envious? Am I wanting some of the glory? Or differently, are you, are you okay when, when someone else sees a friend come to faith, but all your friends are, are hard-hearted? Are you envious of that? If we're about reward, our own honor, then we won't be okay with that. But if we're about Jesus' honor, then joy begins to bubble up. We're just delighted that his name has been praised. It's like what we've seen with uh, the Apostle Paul in Philippians. A man who, who just loved the fact that Jesus had been preached. Whoever had done it. Christ was being honored. That's what matters. I think we see this as well. Um, this kind of wonderful attitude behind the scenes of church life. And the nameless people who quietly serve other people whether through regularly praying for them, quietly providing a well-needed meal. It's not for the reward. It's for the honor of their king. It's because Jesus has loved them, so they love others. May his name be praised. The king is returning. He's the one worthy. May we, like Barzillai, be content in the king's honor. So three responses, dependent on the king's mercy, delighted by the king's presence, and content in the king's honor. But as we finish, we just need to see one final group, and it's the people of Israel and Judah, in verses 40 to 43. And they're not dependent or delighted or content in the king. No, they are set on themselves. And they're simply just divided by self-interest. They're divided by self-interest, because the king's crossed the Jordan, he's entered the promised land once again, and most of Judah is with him and half of Israel. But it's not all happy, is it? It's a, a load of the rest of Israel have rocked up. They're angry at how things have been done. They accuse Judah of stealing the king. They think being ten tribes, they should have been more involved. Uh, they, they even claim because they just somehow talked about it first, and they should have been more involved. And after all we've seen, this is an extraordinary moment. The king has returned, David himself. He's been shown honor and glory by his men and by these three individuals, and yet the rest just want to make it about themselves. Self-pity. You know, it's like me heading, heading to the Archbishop of Canterbury after uh, King Charles's coronation and asking, you know, why, why wasn't I more involved, actually? You know, why didn't I get to carry the sword, or why didn't I say a prayer? Now, what's behind Israel's comments isn't clear, because are they afraid? 
afraid of how the king saw them once they'd failed to turn up. Or perhaps they're jealous. They thought Judah would get some kind of prestige and reward for their action. Whatever it was, it was self-interest. They didn't welcome the king with fanfare and honor and praise and apologize for being a bit late. They just say, well, why weren't we invited? And the fruit is division. There's bitterness, infighting, stubbornness between brothers. And it, and it all comes when our, our selfishness is combined with thinking God's kingdom is a bit like a football team. You know, there's only enough space for 11 and if you're not good enough, you're not in. So we fight, we jostle for position, we come, become competitive, ruthless, self-interest takes over. And division, cracks start to appear. But God's kingdom isn't like that. The gospel always has room for more, especially for the weak, for the worthless. Jesus came for the sick, not the healthy. Remember, he's a king of mercy. So it's only as once again we take the focus off ourselves and put them on the king does a true unity take root. We become one again. As Tim Keller has helpfully said, the, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. So who do we think about instead? It's Jesus. It's Jesus our king. And at that point, the return of the king becomes a wonderful moment for us. Rather than jostling for position and putting others down, we wait together, don't we? It's God's family at peace. All of us looking to him in childlike anticipation, like waiting for a loved one at the airport. Because we know we're covered. We're covered by his mercy. We're delighted by his presence. We're content in his honor. And so we're ready. We're excited by his return. And so we'll pray all the more. Come back, Lord Jesus. Come back. Amen.